A man came to me for counseling. He had just become a Christian, and he was involved in the church, and his life had changed. But he said, Ron, I'm being attracted by things in my former life. When I first came to Christ, all those things I did before coming to Christ lost their appeal, but now they're becoming attractive again. I feel a a tension to go back into my old life or to keep walking with Christ. I think you know what I'm talking about. You felt this tension. Whether you're an empty nester, married, single, or a teenager, you feel this tension. When we give our lives to Christ, God gives us, by His Holy Spirit, a new nature that works within us. But the old nature is still with us too. If you've not given your life to Christ, you feel the same tension. The tension to turn away from God or turn to Christ. The people of Israel felt this tension when they came into the land of Canaan. God chose them to be his witness in the world to all the nations surrounding them. He called Abraham and promised him that he would give the people of Israel the land of Canaan. Uh, God's promise was not fulfilled for 400 years. But finally, under the leadership of Joshua, the people of Israel came into the land of Canaan. They defeated 31 kings. They divided up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of his life, Joshua called the people together and he said this. We got nothing to read to you. Now, fear. if you would like to turn with me, uh, this is uh, Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Like the guy who came to me for counsel, the Israelites had to choose to follow God or the gods the people followed in the land that they came into. The book of Judges covers 300 years of Israel's history. Although the people of Israel conquered the land, there were still pockets of resistance where Canaanites had not been driven from the land. In some cases, it was because the Canaanites had advanced weapons of war and the Israelites felt like they couldn't drive the people out. In other cases, it was a matter of men of Israel noticing that some of the women in Canaan were very attractive and so they married them. Although they knew God was the only God and the one who gives life, they were tempted to follow the ways of the people around them. God was displeased. You say, what's the big deal? Why did God insist that they drive out all the Amorites? What was wrong with living among them and telling them about God? Wouldn't God be more pleased with their witness? Some people have a difficult time with the book of Judges. Why would a loving God insist that the people of Israel drive out all the Canaanites 
It sounds harsh and unfair. You must understand that God appointed Joshua to lead the people into the land to drive out the Canaanites because their sin was full. When God promised the people of Israel the land of Canaan, uh, God said it will not be fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime because the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. But by the time that Joshua led the people into Canaan, the Canaanites were a wicked people. They were involved in all kinds of sexual immorality, adultery, male and female prostitution, homosexuality, pedophilia, sexual relations with animals. When things went bad with their crops, they would offer their firstborn children on the fire to the god Moloch. God knew that the people of the Canaan had come to the point when there was no more room for repentance. They had so rejected God, he knew that they would never repent. Although they traced their roots back to Noah, like the people of Israel, they knew there was a God that set up right and wrong. They choose to disregard him. God gave them 400 years from the days of Abraham to the time of Joshua to repent, but they refused. God's insistence that the people of Israel drive them out of the land was not unfair. Their time was up. This is the second in our series, How a Nation Unravels. We're looking at the book, Old Testament book of Judges to see what we can learn from Israel to help us and our nation today. So let's review what we discussed last week. Although the people of Israel knew that there's one true God, time and again, they were tempted to stray from God. The book of Judges records a, multiple, a multitude of times when the people of Israel went through a six step process of straying from God, coming back to God, and being restored to Him. So the first step in the cycle was compromise. After Joshua died, the people agreed that they should complete the task of driving out all the Canaanites. Uh, but after a few skirmishes, they decided that it was too tough. Uh, they invited these people to stay in the land and enter their tents, and uh, they gave them jobs. This was a direct violation of what God had asked them to do. Uh, God told the Israelites not to fool around with the people of Canaan, not to live with them, not to trade with them, and not to marry them, but to drive them all out. The people compromised in following God. Assuming that they could drive out just enough people so there was room for them to live there, but not drive them all out. We see the first uh, cycle in Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? After God allowed them to fall into bondage, the people cried out, and he delivered them. But after the judge, he would send a judge. That's what the book is named after, Judges. Then when the judge died, they would astray again. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. 
The second step in this cycle is disobedience. First, the people compromised, then they disobeyed. Uh, when they disobeyed, they tried to convince themselves that what they were doing was not so bad. Uh, they rationalized uh, their behavior. When we're living in disobedience to go, with God, we can't handle the dissonance. So we make excuses to relieve our guilt. You might say, what I'm doing is not so bad. I mean, everybody else is doing it. We rationalize our behavior so that we can live with ourselves. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. This is Judges chapter 3, verse 5. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The third step in the process was bondage. Uh, when the Israelites sinned against him, God punished them by turning them over uh, to the people of the land. The people who were once uh, served them became their masters. This is Judges chapter 2, verse 13. Because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He said... He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Where's the happy life? It isn't there. When we disobey God, we don't find greater happiness. We find misery. The fourth step was they cried out to God. After a while... The people would say, hey, everything we touch is falling apart. We're being destroyed. We're being oppressed by our enemies. Uh, then they would cry out to God, and God would be merciful to them and deliver them. It's time to, for us to cry out to God for our nation. So beginning this Wednesday, I am having a prayer group that will go on every week. It will be from 11 to 12 to pray for our nation and to pray for our church. The fifth step was salvation. Uh, when the people cried out to God, he sent them a judge empowered by the Holy Spirit who delivered them. And uh, God was faithful to deliver them every time they cried to him. Judges 2.18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. The final step in the process was a period of peace. Uh, so we read in Judges 3.11, So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So then the judge would die, then they go back to straying away from God. Coming back to God is the way to peace. So what can we learn from the book of Judges to help us and our nation? I think the main thing we learn today is as the family goes, so goes the nation. Repeat that after me. As the family goes, so goes the nation. Let me say two things about that. First, faith in Christ cannot be inherited. If your mom or dad was a Christian, that does not make you one. We read, 
Judges 2, verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. How could that happen? A generation grew up who didn't know the Lord and they didn't even know the stories of what God had done. If you know the Bible, you know God did many amazing miracles to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt, turning the the river Nile into blood, sending locusts to cover all the, the land, frogs throughout the land. Amazing miracles. And then when they came into the land of Canaan, God did many miracles there, uh, stopping the, the Jordan River so they could cro- cross on dry land. But the writer of Judges tells us their children didn't know the Lord and they didn't even know these stories. How did that happen? The parents didn't tell them. Parents, you have no more sacred duty than to get Jesus into the minds and hearts of your children. No worldly accomplishment can outweigh the tragedy of failing to get the gospel to your sons and daughters. The top priority for our church has to be helping parents disciple their children and reaching the children and youth of our generation. We can never reach the world for Christ if we fail to make disciples of our own families. Mothers and fathers, tell your sons and daughters why you committed your life to Christ and how you did. Tell them stories of how God has worked in your life. So they'll want to experience the same in their lives. We're being told today that the family doesn't matter anymore. 75% of people in prison are fatherless. In other words, they grew up without a father in their home. That statistic alone should convince us that family matters. To keep our nation from unraveling, one of the biggest needs we have today is to strengthen our families. I like that one of our growth groups is studying marriage this term. I hope that group or another group will pick up parenting sometime in the future. Another challenge we face is in our schools. Parents, we have to know what our children are learning in school. If they're being taught that there are no moral absolutes, there's no right and wrong, we need to show them that that theory is flawed. That's based on evolutionary theory, that everything that we have evolved over millions of years, and there is no God. So there are no moral absolutes. We believe there is a God... And right is wrong, and right and wrong is based on God's holy character. That's why right and wrong never changes. If our children are being taught that our forefathers used, or they're not being taught that our forefathers used unusual wisdom in crafting our Constitution, and our nation is no more remarkable than any other, we need to counter that kind of thinking. If the focus of the teaching our children receive in schools is on the sins of our country, slavery and running roughshod over Indians, that was bad. But we also have to tell them about the good things that many of the people before us have done. 
the 1930s, Hitler's Third Reich declared public education compulsory and the children could not be educated at home. Hitler knew that if his uh, the Third Reich was to survive, he had to mold the hearts of children and pull them away from parents. And so they taught children that the Aryan German people were a superior race and that Jews and people with mental or physical disabilities and elderly people with terminal illnesses needed to be eliminated. Many parents today feel that after 12 years of public school and four years of public university, they've lost their kids. They no longer believe in Christ. They no longer believe our country is a good country. To avoid that, we need to consider charter schools, private schools, or Christian schools, or homeschooling, and instituting practices in our home to help us disciple our children. So I'd like Matt Nichols to come up here. Is Matt here? Maurice, why don't you go see if you can find him? And... uh, Matt is an example. I'd like him to share uh, a little bit from his life of how they're discipling their kids. So Matt has uh, three kids. Uh, He has a daughter who's a junior in high school, has a uh, son who's a sophomore in high school, and then a a daughter who's a fourth grader. So when he gets here, we'll have him share. But let me just push on. Second, God loves us too much not to discipline us or members of our family when we disobey. Although it's sad to read about the misery of the people of Israel that they experienced during the time of the judges, it reminds us that God disciplines us if we disregard uh, his word. Uh, When God disciplines us, often he doesn't have to move a muscle. He set up the laws of right and wrong, and when we disobey, we just simply suffer the consequences. Come on up here, Matt. Uh, We just suffer the consequences. So uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on in your family and how you, it seems like, it seems like your kids are great. And uh, <laughs> uh, so tell us what you guys are doing as parents. Well, thank you for the compliment for my kids. Sometimes parents don't always see it when we're at home, but <laughs> I'm always happy when I hear it from other people. All right. Well, my name is Matt Nichols. I'm going to share with you here today. When Ron asked me to speak, I was uh, a little hesitant to do so. Um, I began thinking about only the things the Nichols family was not doing, uh, and this had me a a bit discouraged. Uh, But when I spoke to Ron, um, he he just wanted me to focus on the things that we we are doing uh, uh, as parents and and as a family. Uh, And we're by no means perfect, uh, and there's lots of, of room to improvement, or lots of room for improvement. Now, there's no special formula or, or game plan that, that we're following. Uh, there's no checklist that we go through to track our progress. Um, with busy schedules and limited time, things like family dinners um, are rare. Whole family devotions are, are few and far between. We have work, school, homework, conferences, meetings, practices, games, social activities, uh, and many other appointments and responsibilities that just steal about every moment of, of every day. 
I'm sure this sounds familiar for many of you. Now, in my experience working with kids, nothing speaks louder than actions. You know, we hear it saying, talk the talk, walk the walk. Well, this is how we walk the walk. As a family, we've worked to make church on Sunday mornings a priority. Um, I want my kids not to just hear that going to church is important. I want them to see it as a priority. I know this is working when my son, uh, every Saturday evening, will ask me what service we're going to and not asking if we're going to church or, or not. I also want my kids to see church is more than just something we do on Saturday mornings. I want them to see church as something to experience, something to be a part of. So we serve. We get involved. Now, as followers of Christ, we're called to serve. I cannot expect my kids to follow the word if I'm not doing it myself. Now, when it comes to spending time in the Word, I, I, I read my Bible in, in the living room or, or at the dining room table. I do it in a place where my children can see it. I read from a, a hard copy, not a tablet or a phone. I don't want my kids to think that their dad is just on another angry bird's bender. I want them to know what I'm doing. I want my kids to know that I'm prioritizing time in the word. Now, prayer is essential in our daily lives, especially as parents. It's easy to assume that we know everything about being a kid, but the truth is we don't. It's true, like many of you, my wife Rachel and I were once kids. We once went through high school. We lived out our teenage years but we don't know what it's like to be a kid today. Children and teens live in a different world than we lived in, and prayer is, is most definitely needed for wisdom, strength, patience, and understanding, and a laundry list of more. Many nights, Rachel and I have spent time going through a devotional and praying together before bed. We've prayed over and with our kids before bed since they were first born. It has become a natural and regular part of our routine. Now, there are some nights things get away, away from us and we do forget. But I hear a shout from down the hall, and it's from Ashlyn. Hey, is anyone going to pray with me or what? Now, there's one thing that we do that's proven to be the most difficult we listen. Our kids do not see the world the same way Rachel and I do, and I do not want them to look at the world through my lens. I want them to see the world through the lens of Jesus. There are many influences that are out in the world today, and it can be exhausting trying to combat every one of them. There are times when my kids will share their opinions on social and political issues that make me feel as if I have failed to raise them right. My initial reaction is to jump into a debate that gets loud, heated, and has no constructive conclusion and often ends in tears. I realize that this is a worldly reaction, and I want to be better than that. I want my home to be a safe place 
especially for my own children. I want my kids to be able to be vulnerable and to be honest. So I started listening. I started to ask questions. We started to talk. Kids don't always know how to express their thoughts and feelings in a clear and concise way. Oftentimes, a thought or opinion is miscommunicated or misinterpreted. As parents, we don't always have the whole picture. But when I started to listen and ask questions, I was better able to understand their thoughts, their feelings, and their why. Now, this often opens the door for me to share my why and to be able to share that in a way that they are able to hear and to receive. So when I listen now, I hear a daughter who has a heart for the underserved and the underrepresented. When I listen now, I hear a daughter with a passion who is strong and not afraid to speak up for others and stand up for what she believes. When I listen, I hear a son who has strength and integrity. Now, each of us has a different story and a unique relationship with Jesus. I want my kids to have their own story and their own relationship with Christ. Sometimes this involves stepping back and letting them bump their heads once in a while. Now, Rachel and I will still be there to guide them. And hopefully they do learn a few things from our experiences, but they need to have their own experience to develop that personal relationship with God. And we pray each and every day that we've provided a strong foundation for each of them to build upon. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. I share your hesitancy to talk about this subject. Uh, We have nine children. And uh, I think it's important to uh, remember what we've done well with our kids rather than focusing on maybe mistakes we've made. And uh, so I'm going to do a series uh, after we do this series, How a Nation Does Unravel on the Family. And we'll be talking about parenting. Uh, Apostle Paul writes, These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So the reason God gives us the book of Judges and all the Bible is so we can learn from the past and not make the same mistakes who people before us. God warns us that he will discipline us, our families, and our nation if we disregard him. Uh, If you're living in disobedience, don't think that it'll never catch up to you. The point of God's discipline is not to hurt us, but to draw us back. And that's one of the rays of light that comes through in the book of Judges. Every time the people recognized that they had sinned and they had strayed from God and they cried out to God, he was merciful with them. So Judges actually gives us good news that there's hope for us and our families and our nation. We need a revival today. And I think it needs to begin in our churches. God has done his biggest works through the years, it seems, through times of revival. The first was in the first century when the gospel of Christ spread like wildfire 
throughout the Roman Empire. Then there was the Reformation with Martin Luther and John Calvin. There was the Great Awakening with uh, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and John Wesley. Then there was the Transcendental Awakening led by Charles Finney. We need another revival today. God's words to Solomon are still true. If my people who are called by my name, this is why it has to begin in the church, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Again, beginning this Wednesday, 11 to 12, I'm going to have a time of prayer right here at the church that I invite you to join us. Like the man I counseled, Christians encounter a battle between two natures. There's the new nature God gives us by the Holy Spirit that wants to please Christ. And there's the old nature that wants to lead us into sin and away from God. We're tempted to follow our old nature. But remember what we learn from the people of Israel in the time of the judges. Compromise and disobedience leads to bondage and misery for ourselves, our families, and our nation. As the family goes, so goes the nation. We cannot turn our nation back to God unless we turn our families back to God. And we cannot turn our families back to God unless we turn to God and commit our lives to Christ. And you can do that with me right now as we pray. Father, thank you for this book of Judges that shows us what happens when we turn away from you. And we want to commit ourselves to you right now or recommit ourselves to you, to following you. You are the only God and the way to true life. And so I want to give you a moment right now to pray to God. Commit to him your life or recommit to him your life and your family and doing everything you can to strengthen your family and pray for our nation. And if you've not given your life to Christ, you can give it to him right now. Tell him you believe he's the son of God who was raised from the dead and you want him in your life. You pray. God, we thank you so much that you are a holy God, that there is right and wrong, and there's one person we can look to to know what is right and what is wrong. And we thank you that you're a merciful God, a loving God. You're quick to forgive if we will but turn to you and confess our sin. And so we do that right now. In Jesus' name we pray.